You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marveled at the golden face of Tutankhamun? Or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of ancient Egypt. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hello. I want to start today by saying that I am always humbled and thrilled when people want to help out the podcast. Even the simple thank yous I get via email or on Twitter make my day. You also have people assist by donating to the podcast or by offering to help in some other fashion. It's pretty awesome when that occurs. Well, today's episode is possible because one of our supporters offered to write a script. Friend of the show, Ross Arbor, is a news writer based in Canada. Ross has a passion for history, especially the history of space exploration. So when Ross offered to write a script covering the first lunar landing, I was like, absolutely. And the best part is, he knocked it out of the park. He penned an eloquent and concise and entertaining script that fit right into what we do at the Explorers podcast. So huge, huge thank you to the friend of the show, Ross Arbor. This is just an awesome treat for me and for all of the fans of the show. I hope you all enjoy. Also, one other note for this podcast. I am recovering from an illness, and my voice isn't quite what it normally is. So if you think I sound a little weird, I probably do. But that's all right. Everything else is the same. On with the show. Today on the Explorers podcast, we are going to do something a little different and venture a little further into the unknown, looking at one of history's greatest feats of exploration, landing on the moon. It is still the furthest humans have ever been from Earth, and the only time we've set foot on another celestial body. It's a timely episode, too, as this year is the 50th anniversary of the first lunar landing, in 1969. A lot has been written about the Apollo missions, so we have the luxury of understanding, second by second, in great detail, exactly what took place. And unlike early explorers setting out for the New World, whose logs were our sole record, much of it was broadcast instantly to millions of people. Instead of the vast seas, our explorers hurtled through the vast expanse of space, landing in a spot on the lunar surface called the Sea of Tranquility. And rather than Europeans finding the Americas, this time it was the Americans doing the exploring. Before we get started, some brief housekeeping. First, I want to remind people about our website, explorerspodcast.com. On it, I always post links to interesting stuff related to the podcast. For this episode, that includes links to source materials as well as some photographs. Second, a reminder that you can join us on Facebook and Twitter. I post most days on both, often finding some cool historical facts relating to recent news, usually about exploration. It's all very fun. You can find links to those pages on our website or go to facebook.com slash explorerspod 
or at Explorers Pod on Twitter. Again, come and say hi. And finally, I want to add, one of the best ways you can help promote the podcast is by giving us a review on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcast. Giving us a nice review will help raise our profile, and I really appreciate your help. So, with all of that out of the way, it is on to today's episode, Apollo 11 and the First Footprints on the Moon. The Space Age was the period in which humanity slipped the bonds of Earth for the first time. It is generally considered to have started in 1957, when the Soviet Union launched the first satellite. They were one of two space superpowers, the other being the United States. Their rivalry was not unlike the maritime feud of Portugal and Spain during the Age of Discovery. Only now, they fought for scientific and military supremacy in space. And bragging rights, of course. For today's episode, we have two things on the agenda. First, a brief overview of that space race, which led to its brilliant climax, the moon landing. Second, Apollo 11 and that historic landing. 400,000 Americans worked to make it possible. We will mostly focus on three of them. The crew, who traveled half a million miles round trip, accomplishing a feat still incredible half a century later. They are Commander Neil A. Armstrong, the first man on the moon, plus Edwin Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins. Let's get started. Of the world's two spacefaring nations, the Soviet Union jumped out ahead. The year was 1957. The Soviets launched the first object into orbit, a metal sphere named Sputnik, striking fear into America and its western allies. Then they launched a dog, Laika, as well as an unmanned probe to the moon, called Luna. Their biggest coup came in 1961, when Russian cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin became the first person in space. The accomplishment shocked the United States and triggered a frantic rush to respond. About a month later, Alan Shepard became the first American in space. But in an effort to leapfrog the Russians, NASA, America's National Aeronautics and Space Administration, needed a plan so audacious, so daring, and so difficult to achieve that no country had an advantage out of the starting gate. So that same year, with just Alan Shepard's 15 minutes of space experience under America's belt, President John F. Kennedy announced a seemingly impossible goal, land a man on the moon and return him safely to Earth before the end of the 1960s. The clock was ticking. This was an incredibly ambitious and bold goal. It was sort of like explorers trying to sail to distant continents if ships had only floated once, and for just 15 minutes. For the occasion, President Kennedy delivered a rousing speech in which he laid out a daunting summary of the challenge that lay ahead. Quote, If I were to say that we should send to the moon 240,000 miles away, a giant rocket more than 300 feet tall, fitted together with a precision better than the finest watch, carrying all the equipment needed for the propulsion, guidance, control, communications, food, and survival on an untried mission to an unknown celestial body, then return it safely to Earth, re-entering the atmosphere at speeds of over 25,000 miles per hour, causing heat about half that of the temperature of the sun, and do all this, and do it right, and do it first, before this decade is out, then we must be bold. End quote. It was going to be a massive technological endeavor as well as an expensive one. And that brings us to the issue of money. Not entirely, but a little, like the European monarchies that turned to the treasuries of the respective countries for financing voyages of discovery, the American public dug deep, to the tune of $25 billion, or well over $100 billion in today's money. A truly astronomical figure. Pardon the pun. A series of missions was carried out to test the various functions that needed to work in harmony for a successful moon landing over two programs named Mercury and Gemini. Next was Apollo, 
but it got off to a disastrous start when, in January of 1967, a fire tore through Apollo 1 during a test on the launch pad, killing the three astronauts inside. NASA and its contractors worked overtime to fix shoddy construction in the capsule that led to the fire, and like a phoenix rising from Apollo 1's ashes, men returned to space on Apollo 7 with a successful mission. Next time on Apollo 8, the crew circled the moon for the first time, venturing further from Earth than any before, capturing one of the most famous photographs of all time, Earthrise, of the Earth rising above the lunar horizon. Apollo 9 and 10 were like dress rehearsals, further perfecting the procedures short of landing, which is not exactly a minor detail. So that brings us to Apollo 11 and the stars of today's podcast. Neil A. Armstrong was born in Wapakoneta, Ohio in 1930. He was fascinated with flight from an early age, eventually training to be a Navy pilot. When war broke out between communist North Korea and the U.S.-backed South, Armstrong flew combat missions. When he returned to the States, he finished his studies in aerospace engineering, joining NASA's predecessor as an engineer and test pilot. Armstrong was ultimately selected as an astronaut and flew in space on Gemini 8 in 1966. During that mission, a thruster on Armstrong's spacecraft was stuck open, and he went into a dangerously fast rotation that threatened the lives of the astronauts. But Armstrong was able to get his ship under control, abort the mission, and return safely to Earth. He also had a close call back on Earth when he was ejected from a lunar landing training vehicle that fell to the ground in a fiery implosion. Armstrong clearly had a lucky streak. When it came to the riskiest mission of all, he would be selected as commander and therefore designated to be the first man to walk on the moon. He was 38 years old. Our second astronaut was Edwin E. Aldrin Jr., better known as Buzz. The nickname stuck when his little sister mispronounced the word brother as Buzzer. Aldrin was also born in 1930 in Montclair, New Jersey, and like Armstrong, he too flew as a fighter pilot in the Korean War. After Korea, he got a PhD in aeronautics and astronautics from MIT. His thesis topic was the rendezvous of two spacecraft in orbit, which would be a critical skill to a successful moon landing. So he was a natural choice for the astronaut program, where his PhD and thesis subject earned him another nickname, Dr. Rendezvous. He flew in space on Gemini 12 in 1966. Aldrin was designated to be the second man on the moon, as well as having the responsibility for piloting the lunar module, called Eagle. More on their spacecraft in a moment. The third member of the crew was Michael Collins. He was actually born in Rome, Italy, where his father was stationed with the U.S. Army. Like Armstrong and Aldrin, he too was born in 1930 and flew as a fighter pilot. His first application to the astronaut corps was initially rejected, but he persisted, succeeding on his second try, and went into space in 1966 aboard Gemini 10. If all went right, Collins would not land on the moon. Instead, he would circle in a lunar orbit overhead while Armstrong and Aldrin were on the ground. He would pilot the mothership, called Columbia, that ferried all three men to the moon and back. Now, a bit about the ships that would be part of the lunar landing. Columbia was the command and service module, named for another prolific explorer, Christopher Columbus. It was cone-shaped and a few dozen feet long. Inside were the crew's quarters, where they would work, eat, and sleep. It carried stores and provisions, such as oxygen and fuel cells, powered by hydrogen and oxygen. Together, those two ingredients also generated drinking water. For the trip to the moon, the lunar module Eagle hitched a ride. Eagle was named for the bird representing the United States, but resembled a different member of the animal kingdom, a spider, coated in a thin foil to protect the astronauts while saving weight. In a later mission, it would prove useful as a lifeboat for the crew of Apollo 13 
after a catastrophic failure in the command and service module. The eagle was also the mission's insignia, which pictured the bird flying with an olive branch to the moon, symbolizing peace. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. On July 16, 1969, our three spacemen rocketed away from the launch pad at Cape Canaveral, Florida. Cape Canaveral was to the moon missions what Palos was to Columbus, the port from which his ship set out for uncharted territory. The astronauts were perched atop a mammoth rocket, twice as tall as the booster for the space shuttle. 3,000 gallons of rocket fuel went to the engines every second, producing a staggering 7.5 million pounds of thrust at liftoff. That's about six times the space shuttle, or more than two dozen jumbo jets. It's still the biggest and most powerful rocket ever flown. The trip to the moon, some quarter of a million miles away, would take three days, during which time the crew would do basic housekeeping, conduct a small course correction, and transmit live TV from space. They were getting further and further from Earth's gravitational pull until the moon's gravity was strong enough to take over. On July 19th, they burned their engine to slow down and slipped into orbit around the moon. Collins wrote, quote, That small two-dimensional disk in the sky was replaced with the most awesome sphere I had ever seen. End quote. The views back to the shrinking Earth were profound too. Aldrin observed that wars were fought over borders, which were arbitrary and invisible from space. Many astronauts had deeply moving experiences, seeing our home planet floating in the void. It's been said that man went in search of the moon and discovered Earth. That night, Armstrong and Aldrin prepared all the equipment they would need the next day for their historic landing. Then they went to bed to rest up for a very technically demanding task. But as you might expect, neither got much sleep. On the morning of July 20th, with everyone ready, the T's crossed and the I's dotted, Commander Armstrong and Lunar Module Pilot Aldrin said goodbye to their crewmate Collins, who would stay behind in the command module, and climbed into Eagle. Collins threw the switch that separated them, and they drifted apart into the emptiness of space. He was now alone. Someone in Mission Control remarked, quote, Not since Adam has any human known such solitude as Michael Collins is experiencing. End quote. In the lunar module, Armstrong proclaimed, quote, The eagle has wings. End quote and began a 12-minute computer-controlled descent to the crater-pocked surface of the moon. Now, let's take a moment and talk about that computer. Computing at the time was primitive and not exactly compact, and yet it had to guide the spacecraft from Florida, a quarter of a million miles away, to a moving target, the moon, and land them within a few feet of the target, with no margin for error. It did all that with much less power than the graphing calculator used today in a high school math class. The astronauts also had a space sextant on board to make star sightings, but the computer was their primary navigational tool. Five minutes into the descent to the moon's surface, the computer's meager memory was overwhelmed, and alarm bells started ringing. There was momentary panic, and the astronauts asked Mission Control whether they needed to abort. 
The answer came from a 27-year-old programmer named Steve Bales. The young computer whiz later earned the Presidential Medal of Freedom, just like the astronauts, for his decisiveness. In that agonizing moment, he determined the alarm was not mission critical and shouted, Go! Closer to the surface, another, more critical problem arose. Eagle was going too fast, and thus the computer was taking the module into a giant, boulder-strewn crater, which would have been disastrous. Armstrong switched to manual control and directed Eagle from the crater, averting a crisis. But that created a new problem. Traveling further takes more fuel, and they were running low. Armstrong quickly made a decision and guided Eagle to a new landing spot. They were 100 feet from the moon's surface, with only 90 seconds of fuel available. A minute later, Houston called up that Eagle only had 30 seconds in the tank, just as it started kicking up lunar dust. Then, a probe on the footpad made contact with the ground, triggering a light in the cockpit. Aldrin called out, contact light. Three seconds later, Armstrong cut the engine. There was just 20 seconds of precious fuel remaining. After a pause that seemed like an eternity, Neil Armstrong radioed Houston, saying, quote, The Eagle has landed. End quote. The Apollo 11 team had done what seemed impossible just six years earlier. Of course, now they had to get back, which was also complicated and hazardous, but for now, everyone was savoring the landing. With the landing successfully completed, the next step was to leave the lunar module. That moment would be equally as memorable. Millions of people from around the world watched as Neil Armstrong came down the ladder, stepping onto the surface and offering one of history's most famous quotes. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. The lunar landing and the subsequent stepping onto the moon remains one of the most amazing moments in the history of exploration. On the surface of the moon, the American flag was erected, but unlike previous explorers planting their flag in uncharted territory, it was not a territorial claim. America was, and still is, a part of a treaty that prevents any country from laying claim to the moon. Armstrong and Aldrin would leave a plaque on the moon, which reads, quote, Here men from the planet Earth first set foot upon the moon, July 1969 A.D. We came in peace for all mankind, End quote. It was signed by the three astronauts and President Richard Nixon. Nixon would place a call from the Oval Office in Washington, which he dubbed, quote, the most historic telephone call ever made, end quote, praising the astronauts and wishing for their safe return. Of course, the man who kick-started the lunar project, President John F. Kennedy, never saw his dream realized, as he had been assassinated in Dallas in 1963. Once on the moon, the two astronauts bounded about, weighing one-sixth of what they did on Earth, feeling light, even in their bulky moon suits. The suits were temperature-controlled and pressurized with oxygen, designed to be comfortable from 250 degrees Fahrenheit in the sun to minus 250 degrees at night. This portable, living cocoon kept them alive in the hostile lunar environment. Their impressions of that environment ranged from the technical, Neil Armstrong noted the fine powdery surface, to the profound, Buzz Aldrin coining the term magnificent desolation. Aldrin said that the moon was barren and desert-like, with one startling exception, Eagle, with its bright gold-colored foil coating reflecting brightly. In that desert, Earth looked like a distant oasis. One other note about the moon dust. It was so irritating. When the astronauts went back inside Eagle, they slept in their helmets to avoid breathing in the fine dust floating around the cabin. On the moon, the astronauts collected rock samples for geologists and took photographs. Armstrong was put in charge of the camera, so most of the photos we have from their historic moonwalk are of Aldrin. 
By the way, Aldrin, a religious man and an elder in his church in Texas, took Holy Communion on the moon. NASA kept this quiet, fearing a Christian sacrament would draw unwanted scrutiny. There had already been controversy when a previous crew had read from the Bible in space. In total, Armstrong and Aldrin spent two and a half hours walking on the moon, never straying far from Eagle. Later, moonwalkers would spend longer on the lunar surface, up to seven and a half hours. By the end of the program, they had developed a little electric car to go further afield, up to 11 miles. Back on Earth, headlines like Man Walks on Moon blared from the front pages of newspapers around the globe, except the Soviet Union's Pravda, which downplayed it, with a small mention on the front page and a few columns buried on page 5. When it was time to return, the astronauts left everything they didn't need on the moon, where it remains to this day. So, the American astronauts had reached the moon, landed successfully, and walked on its surface. Now it was time to go home. Eagle's engines fired, sending them rocketing into moon orbit to link up with Collins, still circling overhead in Columbia. It takes less thrust to get off the moon, because there's way less gravity. But if the engine had failed, they would be stuck forever. There would be no way to come and rescue them. But things went as planned. Eagle docked with Columbia, and Collins opened the hatch, welcoming his crewmates back inside. In his memoir, Collins says he was so excited he nearly kissed Buzz Aldrin on the forehead, but thought the better of it, shaking his hand instead. With Aldrin and Armstrong in the cargo on board Columbia, they set course for Earth. The trip home was mostly uneventful. As they went, the moon shrank and the Earth grew, and in a fantastic understatement, the crew radioed that no matter where they were coming from, it would be nice to get home. There would be one last TV broadcast, Aldrin quoted from Psalms while Armstrong offered this, quote, The responsibility for this flight first lies with history and with the giants of science who have preceded this effort and next with the American people, end quote. He went on to thank everyone who had built the spacecraft and closed with, quote, God bless you. Good night from Apollo 11, end quote. The next day, the astronauts re-entered Earth's atmosphere. Remember that computer? Well, it steered them into a razor-thin corridor where the air was thick enough to slow them down, but not so thick as to burn them up. One reporter at the time said, if Earth were a basketball, the capsule would have to hit a window no wider than a piece of paper. The crew would leave the service module behind, as only the gumdrop-shaped command module would make the return trip. Its heat shield withstood the fiery inferno of reentry at 25,000 miles per hour. Out the window, there was a dazzling cascade of swirling, super-hot gases. During re-entry, everyone on the ground held their breath as radio communications could not reach the capsule. For several minutes, mission control was blind. Then, voices crackled through the static, and three giant parachutes were spotted. There was a surge of jubilation in mission control. Only now was a favorable outcome certain, and the astronauts' survival ensured. Out came the cigars. Interesting side note here. The three technicians trained to pack those parachutes were deemed so valuable NASA forbid them from riding in the same car in case there was an accident. Thousands of miles away in the Pacific, the astronauts splashed down in the ocean right on target. Navy divers pulled them from the capsule, the men feeling heavy in Earth's gravity. They were lifted into a waiting helicopter which ferried them to the deck of the USS Hornet, an aircraft carrier waiting to pick them up. President Nixon was on deck along with the band and the press. The hero's welcome was short-lived as they were whisked right into a quarantine. Remember, at the time, nobody knew for certain if they'd be bringing back some moon plague. The Apollo 11 astronauts stayed there for three whole weeks, much longer than the mission, 
talking to their families and colleagues through a pane of glass. After this, the trio embarked on a whirlwind 45-day goodwill tour of 27 countries, being greeted by royalty, heads of state, and throngs of adoring crowds. As far as known, only one country spurned the moonwalkers. Hungary rejected the U.S. offer for a visit. So, what became of our three spacemen? Remember, they were only in their 30s at this point. Well, Armstrong's family described him as a reluctant hero. He went on to work at NASA's DC headquarters, then became an aerospace engineering professor. He spent a decade as a chairman at an aviation computing company and vice-chaired the Commission on the Space Shuttle Challenger Disaster in 1986. He died in 2012 from heart complications. He was 82. In 2014, NASA christened the California facility where he started his career as a test pilot, the Armstrong Flight Research Center. The other two astronauts involved in the lunar landing are alive as of the recording of this podcast, which is November 2019. Aldrin retired from NASA two years later in 1971. The same year, he was hospitalized with depression and alcoholism. He wrote candidly in his memoir about his struggles to return to the mundane routines of Earth and living in Armstrong's shadow. In the 90s, he founded a nonprofit company to promote space travel for the masses. He's also a best-selling author and a passionate advocate for more crewed missions, including to Mars. The mission's third crewman, Michael Collins, is unfortunately often overlooked, despite his crucial role, because he never set foot on the moon. He retired from NASA in 1970 to take a job in the Nixon administration's State Department. He says that had he stayed, he may have been the last man to walk on the moon on Apollo 17, based on NASA's system for rotating crews. In 1971, Collins became director of the National Air and Space Museum, where his Columbia Command module remains on display. All three of the astronauts are the subjects of many books, if you want to take a deeper dive. The biography First Man is about Armstrong, and was recently made into a Hollywood movie. Aldrin's memoir is called Magnificent Desolation, and Collins's Carrying the Fire. There is a comprehensive account of all the Apollo astronauts based on exhaustive research and interviews with all the major players called A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin. If you're going to read one of the many books about the moonshot, it is an excellent choice. There is also a new documentary to coincide with the 50th anniversary. It's called Apollo 11 and uses never-before-seen film from the NASA archives, beautifully restored. And HBO's miniseries, From the Earth to the Moon, is a wonderful dramatization. So, it has only been 50 years, a blip in human history, but we already know the legacy of Apollo 11 will be remembered for centuries to come, like we will study the great voyages of the Age of Discovery some 500 years later. It recasts humanity's place in the universe, putting our closest celestial neighbor in the domain of man, while offering a new perspective on the beauty and fragility of this planet we call home. Homer E. Newell, a longtime NASA manager, wrote, quote, Only Earth, so far as we know it, nourishes the vast abundance of life we so casually accept, end quote. When ranking the most significant event of the 20th century as it drew to a close in 1999, historian Arthur Schlesinger Jr. picked the first moon landing. As for the moon, men would return on six more occasions. Five missions would reach their goal. As we mentioned, the doomed Apollo 13 was forced to abort. Eventually, the program was scrapped as the purse strings were tightened and the public's appetite for expensive moon landings waned. It is still the furthest place we've ever set foot, and only a dozen men have ever done so. Plans are in the works to return to the moon, and eventually on to Mars. However, they lack the urgency and national will of the 1960s space race. As things stand, 
It would be as if no Europeans returned to the Americas 50 years after they were first discovered. But who knows, maybe it will happen in the next 50. So that is it for this edition of the Explorers podcast, The Incredible Journey of Astronauts Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins to the Moon. Again, a massive thank you to friend of the podcast, Ross Arbor, who researched and wrote the script for this episode. I cannot thank him enough for his contribution. It has been awesome. Thank you, Ross. So that is it, the story of Apollo 11. Thank you for listening. We will see you next time. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story. It's unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.